message this morning, I'd like for us to turn our attention, we might briefly, to the folks in Texas. Uh, my dad lives in the Houston area, and uh, needless to say, they are, are getting inundated by that hurricane, and uh, I'd like for us just to go to the Lord right now and lift those folks up in prayer and for the first responders who are going to be getting in there as well as disaster relief workers trying to uh, help those folks out. Let's pray. Father, we want to lift our fellow citizens, Lord, in Texas this morning, who, Lord, are continuing to deal with the effects of this hurricane. We ask God for your protection for them. We pray, Father, for many, Lord, in some towns who lost homes yesterday livelihoods or wondering how life is going to go on. Give them a special sense of comfort and strength. We pray for congregations of churches who may have lost their church buildings yesterday, Lord, or will not be able to reassemble for worship for some time. God, bless them. See them through this. May they know your care. We pray, Father, for first responders who are already on the scene. We ask your protection for them. And we pray, Father, for many others from the government as well as, Lord, churches and denominations and other groups who will be seeking to get into Texas and into these areas over the next weeks to do disaster relief work. We ask that you would grant them safety and discernment and bless them. And Father, above all, may they know your presence and your care as they journey through, Lord, a very difficult and uncertain time of life. And God, any way that we can be of help to them, we pray that we might be able to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. I got a light bulb. Now these light bulbs are all over the place in our lives. They are so frequent, we just take it for granted. But what would your life be like without this? You'd probably be sitting in the dark a good portion of the time. Without a light bulb, what would this room be like right now without a light bulb? Somebody had been in charge of lighting candles this morning if we didn't have light bulbs. The guy who created, invented the light bulb, Thomas Edison, made a very interesting statement. I want to share it with you. He said, to invent, you need a good imagination and a pile of junk. To invent, you need a good imagination and a pile of junk. Now, that's from one of the greatest inventors that's ever lived. To invent, you need a good imagination and a pile of junk. How many times in life do you and I look at our lives and we feel like we are basically a pile of junk? By the time we get through messing life up and the devil gets through with us and whoever else gets through with us, a lot of times we feel like junk, we look like junk, and we feel like about all that we can produce is junk. But isn't it good to know that the inventor that we have has a great imagination? And the Lord's imagination means that he is able to take our junk and invent out of it. And the invention that he makes out of our junk is known in the Bible as the call and will of God. You see, God in carrying out his will never sits down with 
these perfect human beings and is able to come up with these perfect scenarios. God sits down with the junk that often we've made out of our lives, and he says, I've got a desire, a will, an intention for their lives called my divine imagination, and I want to invent out of the junk of their lives my will. I want to create out of the junk of their lives something that will just blow them away and eternity away. Don't get all wrapped up in the fact that you feel like junk. Get wrapped up in the wisdom and power of your Creator. In the book of Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians at Rome is basically saying to them in the first 11 chapters, this is what God did to own you. This is what God did to take you as junk and develop you into His idea, to work out His imagination for your life. And then in the 12th chapter, what He does is He begins to teach us how you and I can discern the will of God, the call of God for our lives, how we can get on plane with Him and in alignment with Him with the imagination that He is seeking to act out in our lives that we call the will of God. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to begin there with verse 3 today. I'm in a series on discerning the call of God or the will of God in our lives. Last week we looked at the first three verses of this chapter. We saw that the Apostle Paul, speaking to these Christians at Rome, says to them, if you want to know God's will, the first thing you've got to do is present your body as a living sacrifice to God. And we saw in that that it doesn't matter whether we think our bodies are, you know, are the thing or they're just what's left over or we don't have much to give Him. That's not the issue. We've got to serve Him. The instrument we saw, the soul is the body. And if we're going to serve Him, we've got to serve Him with these bodies, no matter how limited they may be, beautiful or ugly they may be, etc., etc. But we've got to serve Him using these bodies. So He says, take your body and present it to God. When you do that, He says, don't be conformed to this world. When we conform to this world and this world's way of thinking, living, and acting, we are walking away from the Lord. He says, rather, I want you to not to conform to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it is through that renewal process, that process of transformation, that we are brought into alignment with what God's will, what God's imagination is for us. Now, he begins to explain to us, beginning in verse 3, what this transformation is going to look like. Let's begin there. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy 
with cheerfulness. Now, my sermon outline is contained in the third page of your bulletin. I invite you, if you would, to follow along with me. Paul continues to say here and to teach, this is how your mind is transformed in all the way you can know and live out the will of God. He says in verse 3, I'm going to say everything I'm going to say to you by the grace of God. That's his way of appealing to his apostleship. He's saying, because I'm called of God, because I'm an apostle, the way that you need to listen to me and pay close attention to me. I've got authority, he says, to speak to these matters. Now, in verse 3, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. The idea of the original Greek language there is don't overthink yourself or don't get hyper about yourself. All of us, whether we realize it or not, have a tendency to overthink ourselves. We live our lives like, you know, thinking that, man, what's going on with me is super important and it's more important than what's going on with somebody else. We get all bent out of shape in life and uptight in life because sometimes we don't feel like we're achieving the things that we want to achieve on the timetable we want to achieve them. We get all depressed and, and upset because things aren't turning out the way we had hoped they would, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We engage in comparing ourselves to other people often, and so we get jealous of those people or we get anxiety around those people, etc., 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 and that's sort of what he's talking about here. We are overthinking life. We are taking ourselves too seriously. He says, don't think that you're more important than you are. You see, my importance is not in my performance. My performance is not in the titles I carry. My performance is tied, my identity, my sense of value is tied to Jesus and who I am in Christ, period. It is not tied to what I do and how well I do it. But if I tie who I consider myself to be to titles and what people say about me and people's opinions of me and my performance and all of that, I've just walked into bondage. Bondage is going to drive me nuts and bondage that is going to keep me away and separated from what the Lord has for me. So he says, don't think of yourself too highly, but verse 3, think about yourself with sober judgment. He's basically saying, don't be an egoholic. Don't be an egoholic. You see, conceit leads us to emotional insanity. And what does the emotional insanity look like? We get angry, we get resentful, we get envious of other people, we get paranoid, we know somebody is after us, we feel threatened, insecure. We start acting in short crazy. When I was a kid, we used to play a game called King of the Hill. Any of y'all ever play that? And the way we used to play King of the Hill, or sometimes it was known as King or Queen for a day, is that one person was on top of some kind of hill. It may have been a picnic table or whatever, but they were the king for the day or the queen for the day. And the object of everybody else was to knock them off their throne and then to set themselves up as king of the day or king of the hill. But you knew that as soon as you knocked somebody off the throne and got yourself up there, that everybody else was going to reorganize to do what? Knock you off the hill. So there was always a struggle going on for who was going to be the king of the hill. And folks, a lot of times that's the way life works. We're either trying to become king of the hill 
or we're trying to stay up there and stay king of the hill. And if you do make it to king of the hill, you know as soon as you get there, you can't hold your breath and enjoy it because somebody else is getting ready to try to knock you off and set themselves up as king of the hill. So we, I used to notice that whoever was king of the hill was lucky if they stayed king of the hill for two minutes. And isn't that the way life works? As soon as you think you have arrived, somebody waiting to knock you off your hill and set themselves up as king. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is when he says to think with sober judgment, he says don't try to play the king of the hill game as you go through life. If you do, you're going to go crazy because you're going to fight to get up there and then once you get up there, you're going to get paranoid knowing that you've got a crowd trying to knock you off to put themselves up there. So he's saying don't even play the game to begin with. Thank you, says, with sober judgment. Now, the word sober there means to be in your right mind. You see, when I'm all caught up in my pride and angling to get up there and be important, people know me and recognize who I am and all that kind of stuff, I'm acting crazy. I'm not acting in my right mind. But when I hear God's call to be humble, then I start acting in my right mind. Now, how do we get at that? It's not the idea of I just go out here and beat up on myself all the time. You know, I'm so bad, I don't have anything to offer, I'm this, that, and the other. That's sort of a false humility. This is what we have to do. Number one, we got to look into our lives and do what I call take an inventory of what God's put into your life. What has God put into your life? What is God doing in your life? What are the life experiences that God has used and is using to to shape and mold you? And by the way, that's not just the good experiences of life because God's great enough that He can take the negative things that happen in your life and use them to to His glory if you will let Him do that. But take an inventory of the abilities, the gifts, the talents, etc. that God's placed in your life. We're going to talk about some spiritual gifts in just a moment. And then do this with that inventory. Say, what is in my life is in my life, not because I'm so great and wonderful and everybody all be kissing up to me, but rather what's in my life is in my life because God put it there. God placed it there. And I'm going to give the glory and the honor to Jesus because He's placed it in my life. That doesn't mean that I'm any better than anybody else and that other people need to look up to me like I'm something hot. It just means that God's placed this in my life for the purpose of serving Him and being used of Him, and I'm going to give Him the praise for that. But again, my identity is not in what He's placed in my life. My identity is in Christ. And notice verse 3, he says, Take that thought of yourself, each according to the measure of faith God has given to you. I want to read that third verse. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. How? Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, when you look at your life and you take that inventory of what God has placed in your life, realize this. Please follow me on what I'm about to say, that he has given you the measure of faith that you need to accomplish whatever he's got for you to accomplish. You see, we just need two things in order to be used of God and to live out the call and the will of God in our lives. We need the talents and the ability to get it done, and he says he's placed that in our lives, and we need the faith to believe God that it can get done through us. And he says he's given us the measure of faith. 
Don't worry about how much faith somebody else has got. The problem most of us has with faith is we walk around and we spend all our time comparing our faith to somebody else's. And I don't know about you, but every time I start comparing my faith to somebody else's, I feel inferior. I have a natural tendency to look to somebody who seems to be able to believe God for things that I could never seem to believe God for, and so I just got all beat up and defeated about faith. He's saying that God has given you all the faith you need, the measure of faith to believe Him for whatever He wants to accomplish through you. So what do you do with that? You don't have to sit around and say, God, would you give me faith? He says He's already given you. Start acting out on the faith. Start living out the call of God for your life. So many Christians hold back on being used of God because they say, I just don't have enough faith. I can't do it because I just don't have enough faith. And by the way, it's not an issue of you believing in yourself. It's an issue of you believing in God and then God believes in you and let Him worry about believing in you instead of you stressing out about whether you believe in yourself or not. But He will give you the measure of faith to believe Him for how He wants to use you. Now, notice verse 4, how he puts this all together. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Paul's using the, the body analogy. He says, look at your human body. You've got eyes that have one function. You've got ears that have another function. You've got a mouth that has another function. You have arms that have a function, legs that have a function, etc., etc. Everybody is created by the Lord, but we're all a little bit different because we all function differently in the body of Christ. Now, what pulls all this together? It's your mind. If your mind's clear, your mind's thinking, your mind's functioning right... It takes the eyes, the ears, the nose, the legs, the hands, etc., and pulls it all together to focus it to accomplish something. The Bible says we're supposed to have the mind of Christ. If the body of Christ thinks with the mind of Christ, then in all of our differences, we coordinate, Jesus coordinates that, so together we accomplish the will of God. Now, when we're not thinking with the mind of Christ, that's when we get dysfunctional. When we're not thinking with the mind of Christ, that's when we pull apart from one another, judge each other, separate from each other, fight with each other, because we're not thinking with the mind of Christ. But if we're thinking with one mind, which is the mind of Christ, we pull together, He coordinates everything to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. Now, if I'm going to walk across this platform... I've got to engage the mind, and the first thing I've got to do is use it with the nerves in my body to put one foot in front of another to get over there. I've got to tap into a whole lot of capacity that my body has got to walk across this platform. It's got to be coordinated or I won't make it over there. I've got to have balance in order to get it over there, and that goes into how my ears are balanced and so forth to get over there. And you see, when the Lord calls us to do something together as the body of Christ, we've got to coordinate together to get over there, and Jesus does that now. What is the mind of Christ? Number one, I want you to write this down. The first aspect of the mind of Christ is humility. Jesus was humble, and if you and I are going to have the mind of Christ, the first aspect of it is we have got to be humble before the Lord and humble before each other. God can use a lot of people, but God cannot use a person who is filled with pride. I've got to be humble. Second, I've got to live to honor Him. And that just comes right from the humility. 
I am living to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ, to bring attention to Him. Third, the mind of Christ is that I love and appreciate other people. Doesn't mean I have to agree with them. Doesn't mean we have to see things the same way. Doesn't mean we're alike. It just means we love each other. We appreciate that person. They don't even mean they have to love me back. But I love them and appreciate them and value them for who they are. Now, when we do that, we start using the gifts he's given us. And he's going to mention in verses 6 through 8 these gifts. And I'm going to go through a series of them that he mentions. These gifts are the abilities that God gives to believers to serve him with and to help the body of Christ. The first gift that he mentions is the gift of prophecy. Now, the gift of prophecy I best understand the scriptures to teach is an ability to speak the truth of God into people's lives infused with vision. The ability to speak the truth of God into people's lives infused with vision. It's the ability to take God's word and speak the truth of God into people's lives and in the process of doing that, help them to begin to grasp a sense of excitement about what God's got in store for them and how God wants to take them and how God wants to use them. If you were to go whitewater rafting, they're going to describe to you the particular rapids that you're going to be encountering. And whether it's a one, two, three, et cetera, a lot of rapids or even more rapids, et cetera. Prophecy is like being able to say, you're getting ready to go whitewater rafting with God, and I want to tell you how these rapids are going to increase as you go along serving Him. It's exciting, and it is an adventure. Folks who have the gift of prophecy talk about God's work in a person's life, and you don't get bored listening to it. You may get a little intimidated. You may get a little overwhelmed. But the one thing you don't do is get bored. Second gift, and he says to do that in proportion or is conformable to our faith. The word there literally means to be analogous to faith. And I think what he's trying to say is this. God's will and God's work for your life, when you receive it, is never going to be in contradiction to Holy Scripture, okay? So whatever God's got for you and someone speaks that into your life, you say, well, how can I know that's the will of God? Always check it out with the Word of God. God's will will never contradict His Word. If you've got a Word from God or somebody's got a Word from the Lord that contradicts the Word of God, you've got the Word of man masquerading as the Word of God, but you do not have a Word from the Lord. God's will, God's call will always be in direct conformity and agreement with His Word. The next gift he mentions here is the gift of service. This is the person who enjoys helping others, who likes to set other people up for for success. They don't expect anything in return, and they love to be involved in people's lives. If you've got the gift of service, you love helping people. You love watching other people succeed. And you enjoy getting involved in people's lives and helping them out, even though that gets messy. Next is the gift of teaching. The person who has the gift of teaching, number one, depends on the Holy Spirit for insight as to what they're going to teach. Now, the gift of teaching here is a fascinating word. It carries two basic nuances to it. The first is doctrine. 
The person who teaches is the person who is able and willing, desirous, and has a passion to take the Word of God and teach the doctrines of the Bible. What the Bible teaches about man, about God, etc. Usually people who love to teach love to study. They love to prepare. And then they love to just lay that out in an understandable way to folks. Even to children. Some of the best teachers I've ever seen were children's teachers. And you know why I'm on that? Jesus was the greatest teacher that's ever lived, and yet he taught in a way that children could understand him. Somehow or another, we got it in our minds that the more sophisticated you are and the better teacher you are, the less people understand what you're talking about. That's the exact opposite. Jesus is the greatest teacher ever was, and kids could understand what he was talking about. That's the reason they flocked to him. But the second aspect of the teacher here is they don't just teach the doctrines, they teach how to live it. And they live it in front of people. Have you ever noticed that the people that taught you the most about the Christian faith just didn't give it to you in verbiage? They lived it out in front of you. They taught it to you by the way they lived. You want to talk about the love of God, I could preach to you all day about the love of God. But if, so, if I go out and live the love of God, that'll teach you more about the love of God in two minutes than I could teach you about the love of God and preaching to you for hours. So the idea of the teachers, they don't just teach it by giving out the verbiage, they teach it by living it, by practical application. That's the idea of the teacher. Verse 8, the exhorter. This is the person, the word that literally means to call someone aside and make an appeal to them. It is the idea of encouraging people, of counseling people in such a way that you stir up something inside of the hearer that gives them the courage to go on. The exhorter is the person who's able to come along by somebody's life and say, you know, God believes in you, and I believe in you, and the Lord's got a work He wants to accomplish in your life, and by the time they get through with you, you're ready to get back out there and go for it again. Have you all ever had somebody like that in your life? You were just ready to throw in the towel. And that person comes alongside of you, and by the time they get through talking to you, something's been stirred deep in your spirit, and you say, man, I want to just stay at this. I want to keep right on going. We usually look at, want to hang out with people like that. We look for those kind of folks because they just say, just you can keep on going, and this is why you can keep on going. And they just have a way of taking the energy that's inside of them and just infusing that kind of energy into you. That's the encourager, the exhorter. Verse 8 says, the one who contributes. This is someone who has the means to help others and does so not to to draw attention to themselves, but God has blessed them with resources, whether it's financial or otherwise, that they can use to bless and help others. Now, let me say one thing on that. It's very easy for most of us sitting here and say, well, let's talk about rich people and how rich people, if they'll follow the Lord, can really help people out. But I'm not rich, so I'm exonerated from this one. I used to think that till I started doing mission trips to Venezuela and I saw real tough poverty and I realized as a middle class American I was a lot richer than what I ever gave myself credit for being. I had air conditioning. All the people I saw there did not have air conditioning or air conditioning they could count on. We in the United States are in a lot better shape than what we realize. 
This is a person that God has blessed as he has all of us, and we give to others to help him out. Verse 8, he says, the one who leads with zeal. The word there, leads, means to stand out front. And the idea there, the zeal, is that this is the leader who not only leads, but who leads with a sense of urgency. Every good leader is going to lead with a sense of urgency. Not only do we need to move, not only do we need this done, but we need to get this done now. Not we need to get this done 20 years from now or 100 years from now, or it's nice that it gets done, we're just going to sort of lay back and don't really care when it gets done. The leader with zeal is the person who leads with a sense of urgency. And why does the leader lead with urgency? Because people are dying and going to hell every day and they need to hear about Jesus and they need to hear about Jesus now. Nobody is waiting to slip into eternity until we get ready to go tell them about Jesus. They need to hear a message and they need to hear it now. Jesus is coming back and we need to get the word out about him as fast as we can, as soon as we can, to as many people as we can. So the leader leads with that sense of urgency. Now, sometimes these folks will drive you nuts because they're out there, let's just go charge the hill and we should have done it yesterday. But that is the idea. And let me say this to you, you don't want a leader who does not lead with urgency. In fact, I'm not sure it's possible to be a leader if you don't have a sense of urgency in your leadership. Verse 8, he says, The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The word cheerfulness is a Greek word, hilaros, from which we get our English word hilarious. Now follow me on this. It's the idea of the person who pulls people up in life and they do it with a smile on their face and such joy that it's contagious. You know, to use the, the parable of the Good Samaritan as an illustration, when we play the Good Samaritan in people's life, this idea of doing it with cheerfulness is not that you walk over that and look at the person and say, well, I'm going to pull you out of the ditch, but how many times have I already pulled you out of the ditch? How many times am I going to have to pull you out of the ditch? You realize how tired I am of getting to pull you out of the ditch? Do you know how much i got to sweat and how much money it's going to cost me and is really screwing up my day to have to pull you out of the ditch? Can't you get your act together and stop falling in the ditch? That is not the gift of cheerfulness. I'm not sure what gift that is, but that is not the gift that he's talking about here, all right? This act of mercy with cheerfulness is you walk over there and you see the person who's messed up, falling down, et cetera, et cetera, and you look at him and you say this, man, it's good to see you today. You may smell a little bad, but so do I. I'm going to pull you out of the ditch, and we're going to have fun getting out of the ditch. And I'm just so glad to see you. And, man, I'm just so glad I get to spend this time with you today. We get to hang out together today. And your smile becomes their smile. And your energy becomes their energy. We need this gift so much in the church. So many people are out there in ditches, in pits, and they need somebody with a smile to do it. It's the person who can walk in a room and light the place up because the joy of the Lord is emanating from them. I've seen people with this gift when I've been in funeral homes walk into a funeral parlor and just the presence of, of who they are 
smile on their face, the sense of the peace of God about them literally changes the atmosphere that's in the room. It's not that they're glossing over stuff, but they have a tremendous ability to just change things. I was hearing a story this past week from Clifton Davis. Some of you that are older remember a comedian called Sammy Davis Jr., And the story is told that Sammy Davis Jr., towards the end of his career, owned his own TV show. And he was getting ready to go on live one day, and he spilled some water. And he had to grab some paper and start cleaning up the water. And he didn't have time enough to get the water cleaned up before they were live. And so while Sammy Davis is sitting in a chair with a television camera right on him, bent over trying to get the water up, in the background, you could hear him counting down, three, two, one, live. Sammy Davis has bent over, and the camera's come on live, and he's on live television trying to clean up water, and he looks up right into the camera, and he smiles, and he says, you know something, I even own this TV show, and they're still making me clean the water up off the floor. <laughs> That's that contagious cheerfulness. And folks, this is not something we come up with. This is something that God gives us with. This is something God puts in us. The joy of the Lord just coming up out of us. Now, the Lord gives these gifts in proportion to how His church needs them. Folks, most of the people who have the gift of teaching, exhortation, service, acts of mercy with cheerfulness, are not going to have those gifts where you get a whole lot of hits on YouTube with people watching you for doing it. They are done quietly and behind the scenes. But can I share something with you? Most of what the church is in desperate need of, of how God needs His people to serve, is not something that's going to get hits on YouTube, okay? It's going to be private. It's going to be quiet. People don't even want to do selfies of it. Because that ties right into that humility. It's not about me drawing attention to myself. It's about me helping somebody else. And if I'm helping somebody else in Jesus' name, I could give a flip whether anybody else knows about it or sees it or not. I'm just going to go out there and do it to His glory and for His glory. We may feel like we're bringing our junk to Him. But our junk, the junk of who we are, mixed with the imagination of God, turns the light on in our lives. And God will use it to turn the light on in the lives of a whole lot of other people. Let's pray.